Well, good morning, everybody. It's just wonderful to see you all here, and what what incredible music to start our morning. I have to say that uh, I, I felt so bad for uh, Dave and Carrie that they had to come up with hymns that would fit the occasion of this sermon because there's not a lot of hymns that deal with this topic, and they they picked wonderful ones. So, so it's funny when you tell people that you'll be preaching a sermon, and they ask about the topic. If you say I'm preaching on the love of God, or maybe the fruit of the spirit, or the resurrection, they smile and look excited. However, if you instead say that you will be preaching on the biblical doctrine of hell, well, people can get a very uncomfortable look in their face. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if some of you, upon seeing the sermon topic for today, silently groaned inside. The biblical doctrine of hell is a heavy and challenging topic to discuss. And tragically, in our modern world, including many churches and church members who would claim the label of Christian, they've steadily watered down the doctrine of hell with the effect of transforming it from a place of eternal conscious punishment, as it is described in Scripture and in our statement of faith, instead into something that is frankly not that big of a deal, or perhaps even making it into a concept which doesn't exist at all. I've even heard of people boasting that they want to go to hell so that they can be with and party with their friends. Others believe that while they may have to spend some time in a difficult place to work off the penalty for their sins, it will only be a temporary situation, and they will eventually be promoted to heaven along with almost everybody else, except perhaps the Stalins and the Hitlers of history. I hope that most of us here today do believe in a literal hell. But exactly what we believe and understand about hell may well cover a wide range of thoughts and concepts. Scripture, and in particular Jesus, has much to say about hell. My goal and desire this morning is to open our eyes to the truth of hell. In the introduction to the book Hell Under Fire, the editors relate the story of a business which was moving to a new and larger store. A friend of the owner sent flowers for the occasion. The flowers arrived at the new business site, and the owner read the card, which was inscribed, Rest in Peace. The angry owner called the florist to complain, and after he told the florist of the obvious mistake and expressed how angry he was, the florist said, Sir, I'm really sorry for the mistake, but rather than getting angry, you should imagine this. Somewhere there is a funeral taking place today, and they have flowers with a note that says, Congratulations on your new location. So we can all chuckle at this funny story, but it illustrates some of the problem that our society has with this important concept. As we progress through this sermon, please keep in mind that phrase, rest in peace, and consider how often at funerals those words are assuredly spoken of someone who tragically will have neither rest nor peace. 
John Gerstner, who was a theologian and professor of church history at Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, once observed that the tendency of modern times has been to take punishment out of eternity or eternity out of punishment. And Pastor just yesterday shared a similar quote from John MacArthur, where MacArthur states, Satan continues in his efforts to make sin less offensive, heaven less appealing, hell less horrific, and the gospel less urgent. A Pew Research survey from last November reported that of all U.S. adults, 40% do not believe in hell. 20% of those identifying as Christians do not believe in hell. And 10% of those identifying as evangelical Christians do not believe in hell. Of those who do believe in hell, most think of it as a place where one is cut off from the presence of God. And few believe that they are going there. Many also believe in a couple of other theories. One is called universalism, in which they believe that everyone will go to hell and will experience eternal. I'm sorry, everyone will go to heaven, and <laughs> big big difference, and will experience eternal life in the love of God. Or they might believe in the concept of annihilationism, in which they believe that the wicked will ultimately be exterminated and completely cease to exist. Neither of these beliefs are supported in Scripture. The New Testament scholar Wayne Grudem, in his volume on systematic theology, defines hell as a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked, which aligns perfectly with our statement of faith here at Webster Bible Church. Presented under the title of The Eternal State, our statement of faith says, We believe that God will raise the dead bodily and judge the world, assigning the unbeliever to condemnation and eternal conscious punishment, and the believer to eternal blessedness and joy with the Lord in the new heaven and in the new earth to the praise of his glorious grace. So our transforming truth for this morning is a literal hell a place of eternal conscious pain and torment, is essential if God is holy and just. So today, we will explore what Scripture has to say in answer to four questions. The first one is, what happens at one's death? The second will be, does hell even exist? The third, what happens in hell? And then we will handle a couple questions that are often raised by skeptics. So we're going to start by reading out of the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verses 1 to 15. And if you're using the Pew Bible, it's found on page 976. It's easy to find because it's the second to the last page in the Bible. The book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John, while he was imprisoned on the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea. This passage describes events referred to as the end times, which will take place sometime in the future. So let us read this passage from Scripture again, Revelation 21 to 15. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. 
And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and for those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then... I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So, our first question is, what happens at one's death? Well, Scripture teaches that every human will eventually receive a new body. It would be natural to think that this occurs right after death, but Scripture actually provides a different scenario. This chapter in Revelation shows how all people who had died in the past will receive new bodies. Verse 4, for instance, tells us that a time will come in which Christ will come back to rule the world for a period referred to as a thousand years. The Apostle John is told that at that time, those who had been martyred for testifying for Christ and his word, along with another group who had faithfully lived through a difficult future period, referred to as the Great Tribulation, will be the first to receive their glorified bodies, and they will then rule the earth alongside Christ. Then when we go to verse 5, it says that when this thousand years have passed, all of the rest of the dead will then receive their new bodies. 
That is what's meant by come to life in verse 5. These references to a thousand years may represent a thousand literal years, or it may be symbolic for a long period of time. It's not clear from the text which view to take. Now, you may be thinking, well, but these end times are sometime in the future, and many, many people have died from the beginning of time to now, and will surely die, continue to die between now and when these end times come. So what happens during the period between their physical bodily death and their receipt of a new body? Well, in Luke chapter 16, 19 to 31, which was read by Noble and Heather, along with the, doing the pastoral prayer, Jesus gives us information about what will happen to both believers and unbelievers who have already died or who will yet die prior to these future end times. Now, this passage that they read from Luke is a parable. And a parable is a simple and usually short story that's used to illustrate a moral or a spiritual lesson. And as we shall see, whenever we consider a parable of Jesus, we need to be careful that we're focused on the lesson that he is conveying and recognize that some of what he says is for illustrative purposes and is not meant to be taken literally. In this parable, we are introduced by Jesus to two characters, a believer named Lazarus. Interestingly, this is the only parable of Jesus in which he provides a name for a subject of the account. And the other unnamed subject is identified as a wealthy man who we are to understand is an unbeliever. In this account, Jesus presents a view of what happens upon the the occasion of what is referred to as the first death, which is the death of our mortal body. In that case, the souls of both the righteous and the unrighteous who have died are taken into an intermediate state. Looking at each separately, we see that the disembodied souls of believers are immediately glorified that is, they're made perfect in holiness. And, um, and they enter into glory in the presence of God. Their bodies, however, remain in the grave, awaiting the final resurrection. Jesus tells us that Lazarus was taken to Abraham's side, which is a euphemism for heaven. We will soon realize that this is a markedly different place from the lower regions of Hades. Now, the disembodied souls of unbelievers, referred elsewhere in Scripture as the wicked, are sent to the lower regions of Hades, where their souls are tormented, as is made evidence by Jesus' words in verses 22 to 24, where he says, The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Now let's address the fact that the request from the rich man uses words that suggest physical suffering. Considering the passages previously read from Revelation 20, which state that the soul will not receive a new body until the end times, 
we must reconcile these passages by assuming that Jesus is using this particular description of physical suffering in the passage from Luke as a figure of speech that we as moral humans can better relate to as a form of torment. Because we exist in a physical body and we understand uh, anguish and torment in a physical body. And Jesus makes a few other points clear in these verses. In verse 26, Abraham states, And beside all of this, between you and us, is a great, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. The point is clear that Hades, the place of torment for the souls of the wicked, is completely separated from heaven. And there's no way out for those who are sent there. Now, some people believe that this is really describing a place where, after their mortal death, the person can work off the punishment for their sins. Or it's a place where they wait while those still alive on earth offer enough prayers and offerings um, on their behalf, the dead person's behalf, which will ultimately cancel out the effect of their sins and lead to their graduation to heaven. That's known in some traditions as purgatory, and it is completely unbiblical. And interestingly enough, this morning I had an encounter with a man uh, and got talking about uh, faith in Christ, and he believes very much so in purgatory. That this place where I can, you know, if I'm not if I'm not right with the Lord, I'll go there and then I'll end up going to heaven. And first of all, that concept is in conflict with the clear teaching of the New Testament with respect to salvation. Now, we spent much time on this over this past year as we studied in Ephesians and in Romans, in which Paul emphasizes that salvation comes only through the cross work of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, one of the key words Paul uses in that uh, set of verses is grace. And grace is the unmerited goodness from God to those who deserve only punishment. And again, unmerited goodness means that we can't earn any of it. And it's in elsewhere he talks about it is a gift. And we all know that, that we have no claim on a gift that someone's offering to us. And Paul makes it plain in this verse that we cannot in any way earn even the tiniest part of our salvation and that the only good works that are acceptable to God are good works that are performed after receiving the gift of salvation from Jesus Christ in service to him. As well, when Jesus was hanging on that cross after suffering through all of the horror that man was able to inflict on him, God then poured out onto Jesus his righteous wrath for all the sins of mankind. In his first letter, Peter states, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 
And also, when Jesus had fulfilled his mission and had taken the full punishment due us for our sins and it was moments for death, he declared in John 19.30, it's, it's written, that it is finished. And the Greek word for finished is tello. And it can also be translated as paid in full. The very concept of purgatory makes Jesus into a liar, contradicting Jesus by saying that what he did was not enough to pay the full price for sin, and it seeks to shift some of his glory onto mankind. And secondly, the concept of purgatory, it's simply not found in Scripture. Some trace it to a group of extra-biblical writings referred to as the Apocrypha, which were written during the period between the last book of the Old Testament, which is Malachi, and the 400-year gap then to the start of the New Testament. Um, And it's important to recognize that neither Jesus nor the apostles referenced those writings in uh, any of the Gospels uh, or the epistles, uh, especially using the terms, it is written, meaning that they're... um, They did not view those writings as inspired. And while there may be useful information in such uh, extra-biblical writings, maybe perhaps in regards to historical facts or customs of the day, uh, we must be careful that we do not look to those particular writings for doctrine. And some also point to various passages in the New Testament to try to justify and support this concept. But in doing so, as I read through this and was studying this, it was clear that, that they are uh, twisting the, the, the plain words of Scripture in order to make, uh, make it support this concept. And in doing so, they are contradicting clear teaching elsewhere in, in Scripture. So therefore, again, Scripture always has to be interpreted against Scripture so that we don't get ourselves into a situation where we're tolerating Um, conflicts within Scripture. The last point on this is that if Jesus was actually describing a purgatory-type place, the rich man would more likely have been asking Abraham to send Lazarus to tell his brothers to get to work on offering prayers and making donations to secure his release from torment. Instead, Jesus has him saying, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. So he appears resigned to his fate, and is instead concerned to warn his brothers to repent of their sins, and thus avoid the fate that he is now living. So on to our second question. Does hell even exist? Jesus himself made many references to hell. In his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapters 5 to 7, and again in chapter 18, Jesus provides several warnings that the destination for unrepentant sinners is hell. For example, in Matthew 18:9, Jesus warns, And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. And one verse before this, Jesus describes this place as eternal fire. 
Furthermore, in Matthew 25, verse 46, Jesus, speaking of the judgment of the unrighteous, says, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The same Greek word for eternal is used in each of these instances. Again, we must recognize that Jesus is not recommending that people maim themselves. No, he is using human illustrations to help his listeners comprehend the seriousness and horror of hell. In that society and in those days, a person who was crippled was in grave danger of attack, illness, or starvation. So somebody hearing Jesus say this would have clearly understood that Jesus was describing something far more horrible than anything they had ever experienced. In Matthew 23, Jesus lambasted the Jewish religious leaders who were opposing his message, accusing them of producing converts who were twice as much a son of hell, implying that hell exerts an influence on people that can hinder them from responding wholly to Jesus' call to repentance. When I began this sermon, I mentioned that November 2021 survey, which found that few people believe that they are going to hell. These words of Jesus, found in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, seem to make a clear case that many, perhaps even most, are destined to, to end up in this awful place. Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are, by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So you heard in those words Jesus saying that few will get into heaven. The word for life references heaven, and many will end up in hell, which is referred to with the word destruction. That is a very, very sobering statement, and it it should get all of our attention. So our third question is, well, what happens in hell? Going back to Revelation 20, John provides us with more information about what happens following the thousand-year reign of Christ, which, again, this is going to be taking place in the future. In verse 2, we're told that prior to the start of the thousand-year reign of Christ, Satan would be bound and locked up in a pit. And this is not permanent at this point, but will last for the duration of the thousand years in which the martyred saints will rule the earth alongside Jesus. And at the end of the thousand-year reign, verse 7 informs us that Satan will be released from the pit and will come out to deceive all of the nations on earth. He will then be defeated, and we are told in verse 10 that he will be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is hell. And these words surely describe hell as an eternal state of torment. We then come to the great white throne judgment in verses 11 to 15. By the time we get to this passage, all the people who had died throughout time have finally received their new bodies, and they are all brought before the great white throne for judgment. And there they are separated into two groups. One group is of those whose names are found in the book of life. 
These are the people who had received Jesus' gift of salvation while still alive in their mortal bodies, and they will be in heaven. The other group is those whose names are not found in the book of life. Well, that's everybody else, and every one of them had rejected Jesus' gift of salvation. The focus in these verses is mainly on the second group, described as death in Hades, which represents those who had physically died and whose souls had ever since been in torment in the intermediate holding area of Hades. These people are judged. They're declared guilty and thrown into the same lake of fire that the devil had been thrown into, where they will also endure eternal torment. It is also important to recognize that the reference to being judged according to what they had done shows that there are different degrees of torment, depending on what sins the unrepentant people had committed throughout their life. Uh, Here are a couple of other verses that illustrate that God's judgment carries degrees of reward and punishment. In Matthew 12, verses 36 to 37, Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And then in Romans 2, 4 to 8, Paul writes, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Another quote from Jesus from Matthew 7 should be addressed here because it speaks of this judgment day as well. And this one's Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. Jesus says, not, any, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And um, in John 6, 40, Jesus tells us, For this is the will of my Father, he references that in that passage we just read, that everyone who looks to the Son uh, and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So that's the work of his Father, or the will of his Father, that uh, he wants everyone to do. And in this warning, Jesus is clearly speaking of people who had been relying on getting into heaven based on their good works, instead of relying solely on Jesus having paid the full price for their sin, plus nothing else. There is no place for me or I in saving grace. To apply it is an insult to Jesus and what he did for mankind. And and as we take that, those verses into context, I get the sense that when we look at that verse uh, in relation to what we dis- discussed in, uh, in the verses in Luke and in Revelation, that 
these people may have been tormented in Hades for a period of years thinking, well, when I get to see the Lord on Judgment Day, I'll set them straight. And guess how that worked out? So, well, I've always enjoyed reading Gary Larson's Far Side cartoons. However, as we will see now, his theology is not very solid. And um, in this cartoon, Satan is depicted as the one running the show. I don't know if you can read it. It says, the one door says, damned if you do. The other one says, damned if you don't. And Satan's saying, come on, come on. It's either one or the other. And he's got a pitchfork in the guy's back. So Satan's here depicted as the one running the show in hell and doing the tormenting. However, contrary to much of what our culture says, Satan's not the one inflicting torment and punishment in hell. God is ultimately the agent of torment. Satan is receiving torment and punishment along with everyone else in hell. Jonathan Edwards was a preacher in colonial America in the first half of the 1700s during the First Great Awakening. He preached a number of sermons about the horrors of hell, and certainly one of his most famous sermons is entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And I recommend that you download that in, off the web and read it because it's, it's just a, an excellent, excellent sermon. He also preached a sermon entitled The Eternity of God of Hell's Torments, from which the following excerpt is taken. Do but consider how dreadful despair will be in such torment. After you shall have worn out the age of the sun, moon, and stars, and your dolorous groans and lamentations, without rest, day and night, or one minute's ease, yet you shall have no hope of ever being delivered. After you shall have worn a thousand more such ages, you shall have no hope but shall know that you are not one whit nearer to the end of your torments. Your souls, which shall have been agitated with the wrath of God all this while and still exist to bear more wrath, your bodies, which will have been burning all this while in these glowing flames, shall not have been consumed, but will remain to roast through eternity, which will not have been at all shortened by what shall have been passed." Let those alarming words sink in. So we'll now turn to addressing a few questions raised by skeptics. The first one that I've chosen is, how does God's nature and his attributes reconcile with the biblical concept of hell? Some skeptics will point to 1 John 4, 8, which proclaims that God is love. And they'll attempt to use that to argue that that verse, God is love, is not consistent with the concept of hell as a place of eternal conscious punishment. This position attempts to reduce God to a single monolithic attribute, love. Of course, God is indeed love, but he's also so much more. Among other attributes, he is holy, which is incorruptible and separate, and apart from sin. And he is a completely righteous and just judge. God also exercises righteous wrath, 
Wayne Grudem suggests that if God loves all that is right and good and all that conforms to his moral character, then it should not be surprising that he would hate everything that is opposed to his moral character. Another argument made against the biblical view of hell is found in the question, is God unjust to send good people to hell? I've also heard it expressed as, the God I know would never send good people to hell. Our recently concluded study in Romans had much to say about that, particularly if we look at Romans three nineteen to 20 Paul writes, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. As we studied, the purpose of the law was to point us to our desperate need for a Savior. And furthermore, in Mark's Gospel, in Mark ten eighteen, Jesus makes the stark statement that only God is good, emphasizing that God does not use a human standard to define who is good. The answer to these types of arguments is found by considering the entirety of God in his attributes and by viewing him through a holistic scriptural lens. At this point, before we close with some points of application, I'd like to take a few moments to just address an important question that some here or watching may have. Throughout this sermon, I have repeatedly referred to Scripture as the foundation for our beliefs. After all, our church is named Webster Bible Church. Um, and some uh, may be struggling with that, especially one is, if, is thinking, hey, there are a lot of books that are viewed as holy by those in different faiths or traditions, but which present different truths. So how can you say that the Bible is the standard for truth and holiness? Uh, the answer to this question could easily be its own sermon in uh, it's a few hours till dinner time. So, um, But uh, I will restrain myself to provide only one response for you to consider. The people who wrote the 66 books of the Bible were working under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as they wrote. And we know that because the Bible tells us so, and also because they were led to include a significant amount of very specific prophecy in their writings, prophecy being predictions of future events. As we stand here today, much of that prophecy has already been fulfilled actually quite a bit of it, with the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there is also prophecy from Scripture that remains yet to be fulfilled. And as a matter of fact, these verses that we read from Revelation 20 are an excellent example of that. And if we really think of it, mere humans cannot predict the future. Only God can do that, because he exists outside of the space-time continuum that we are in. He created it. And he knows the beginning from the end. God included prophecy in his holy scripture in order to confirm that this is his word. And no other so-called holy book can claim such credentials. That's an important... That otherwise, you know, we get it, we're just getting into an argument. It says, well, 
my book is better than yours. Well, no, my book is from God's hands. And so therefore we can trust it. So let's close with some points of application. How then shall we live in light of this reality of hell? Tragically, those who are sent to hell go there because they choose to reject Jesus and the salvation that comes only through his grace. In essence, God gives them what they want. Now, if there is any person here today or listening today who does not yet know Christ as their Savior, the good news is that the Lord brought you here this morning to hear this sobering message and these warnings from the Word of God about the horrors of hell. Our human nature is to discount that which we do not know or to rationalize away that which upsets us. To do so with respect to God's free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ and considering the reality of the eternal torment of hell which awaits any who die outside this grace of God subjects one to grave and eternal consequences. Scripture tells us that our days in this mortal body are numbered by God, but we cannot know when our days are up. As we're sitting here today, we may have another 30, 40, 50, 60, or maybe even more years ahead of us. Or you may have only minutes or hours remaining. That's why the Apostle Paul states in 2 Corinthians verse 6, or chapter 6, verse 2, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. My friend, I beg you not to presume on God to grant you time to delay this. I pray that you will not leave this place today without crying out to God to acknowledge to him that you are a sinner, that you've fallen short of God's standard, and that you recognize that you deserve the eternal punishment of hell because of your sins against him. And to pray that he will send the Holy Spirit to change your heart, to allow you to receive the free gift of salvation that Jesus Christ paid for on that cross, something, again, that you and I cannot pay for in any way on our own. And when you receive this great salvation, the Bible states that you are saved from your sins. Not will be saved, are saved. And you then are, would be, will, will be heaven-bound. Jesus states, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. We'd love to rejoice with you over that. For my saved brothers and sisters, let's use this sober discussion about hell to spur us on to continually preach the gospel to ourselves and to follow the Apostle Peter's instructions in 2 Peter 1, which coincidentally was the subject of the sermon preached last week. Peter tells us in verse 10 of that passage, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. So we should constantly examine our lives to be sure that we truly believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we should examine our lives to see in ourselves the fruit of a redeemed soul to thus make our election in eternity certain. You know, that 
I'm sure all of us have heard that phrase that says, if you are arrested and charged with being a Christian, will will there be enough evidence to convict you? Additionally, this side of heaven, we Christians simply do not know the ultimate destination of somebody else because we cannot know the state of their heart now or in the future. Who knows whether someone who is blaspheming God today, even if he be hours from death, might still be saved at the last breath. And consider the example of the thief on the cross. So what is the pinnacle of love? In John fifteen thirteen, Jesus, speaking of himself, says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Hear this exhortation from Charles Spurgeon. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. My point is, when we share the gospel message with someone, we have no ability to know if their name is in the book of life. But let's consider the situation where we, in faith, step out of our comfort zone and share the gospel with that person before us. And that they ultimately do eventually receive Christ and are saved. Just imagine the joyful reunion we will one day have in heaven and how that person will have experienced this amazing love from a Christian who was willing to risk rejection or maybe sometimes worse, to proclaim Christ to a lost soul. As I bring this sermon to a close, I hope that we can all affirm today's transforming truth, that a literal hell, a place of eternal conscious pain and torment, is essential if God is holy and just. Let's close in prayer. Our Father and our God, We thank you for how you have provided us with such clear warnings in Scripture about the dangers of hell. And most importantly, how you loved us so much that you sent your Son to earth on the greatest rescue mission of all time to live a sinless life, to suffer and die on that cross, bearing your righteous wrath over the sins which mankind, which we have committed, and then to rise in triumph over death and sin. We can never thank you enough. If it is your will, we pray that you will send your Holy Spirit throughout our land to start a new revival, which will see millions receive the salvation from sin that can only come through you. Amen.